Whoopi Goldberg questions whether Hamas is a terror organization, and I question whether The View is a stupid organization for not firing her years ago. Terror in Israel and the teenage girl who was there waiting for the bus. I have her dad on the show with some advice for us all. And Caribbean Jew Yirmiyahu Eliyahu, a.k.a. That Semite, has a bone to pick with Candace Owens. He's here on the show today. Fascinating conversation. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I'm your extremely talented and humble host, Hanla Music, coming at you from the land of Israel, following a dramatic, traumatic, and upsetting day for Jews all around the world, following a double terrorist attack that took place at the entrance of Jerusalem. And uh, yeah, here we are, 24 hours later, trying to absorb the fact that once again, an innocent Israeli child was murdered because of Palestinian terrorists. Now, I have been saying this for a long time now. We need to be very, very aggressive. We need to scare the living Hamas out of the Palestinian people. And that's exactly what the Druzy community did yesterday. So in short, the body of 18-year-old Druze teen Tiran Farrow from Dilayat El Carmel, near Haifa, was returned yesterday after being taken by terrorists in Jenin for more than 30 hours. Now, what happened was that he was seriously injured in a car accident in the Jenin area, and the Red Crescent, which is the Palestinian Hatzalah, they brought him to a hospital in the city where he was pronounced dead. As soon as they figured out that he was an Israeli citizen, terrorists snatched his body from the hospital in front of his father and brother. They disconnected him from the machines that were keeping his heart beating and killed him. Now, who are the Druzim? Well, the Druzim are a minority amongst the Arabs here in Israel. Um, there is about 150,000 Druze people living in Israel. And the most important thing that you have to know is that they don't identify as Muslims and that they are required by law to serve in the IDF. They are police officers. They have top positions in Israeli politics and public service. And they are proud Israelis. So now we have the Druze community, which have consistently supported the establishment of the state of Israel and shown solidarity with Israelis and distanced themselves from Arab Islamic radicalism and terrorism. Well, now they have a problem because one of their sons, one of their teenage boys, well, he's being held by Arab terrorists. So what do they do? They do what any self-respecting community would do, and they issue an ultimatum. And they say, if you don't hand over that body... We are going to march into Janine with our machine guns and show you which way the falafel ball rolls. So you better make sure that our boy's body is released ASAP. And that's what they did. They got out on the streets last night and they protested and they blocked the roads and they threatened Janine's residents and they issued an ultimatum. You have until tomorrow to return the body or we're going to come in there and get him ourselves. And you know what? They returned his body this morning. I love that. We need a little more of that. We need more Druzim in Brooklyn. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I think you guys should just import thousands of Druzim to come live next to the Jewish people. And maybe that way you won't get beat up on the streets. That's right. All right. The next offender I want to talk about is neither a Druze or a Jew. She is an African-American comedian, author, and television personality, Whoopi Cushion Goldberg. Yes, she called herself Whoopi after the Whoopi cushion, claiming that when she used to perform on stage, she didn't have time to go to the bathroom, so she got a little gazzy, and she maybe smelled up the joint. So people used to tell her, you're like a Whoopi cushion, and that's where the name came from. Well, it's certainly appropriate because she's stinking up the television airwaves on The View with her stupidity, leading me to believe that the only reason she's not fired is because she's black. I am under the impression that you cannot fire Whoopi Goldberg or anyone of color who is being an anti-Semite because they are going to cause a whole sturm that, no, you are being the racist because I am the Jew here. I am the Semite here. And now you're being racist and an anti-Semite and I am going to sue you. Now, why is Whoopi Goldberg named Goldberg? (laughs) She is clearly not Jewish. Um, But Goldberg is her name. She says that it's part of her family, part of her heritage, just like being black. She says, I just know I'm Jewish. I don't practice anything. I don't go to temple, but I do remember the holidays. By the way, her name is Karen Elaine Johnson. And in all likelihood, she used the name Goldberg because it just sounded more Jewish. And perhaps she thought she'd get further in Hollywood. So if you ask me, that's cultural appropriation right there. 
Anyways, Whoopi Goldberg, who is very much not Jewish, well, she clearly either doesn't know her facts or she just has an issue with the Jewish people because about nine months ago, she was called out for suggesting or stating actually quite clearly that the Holocaust was nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with race. It was just a hate crime on people, on humanity. She later apologized for saying, well, clearly it had to do about race considering the Nazis exterminated Jews because they were what they considered an inferior race. So my bad. Then she was on The View yesterday talking about everybody's favorite Palestinian-loving congresswoman, Elon Omar, at the Views Roundtable, where they were kind of dismissing Elon Omar's comments about the Jews being all about the Benjamins, or that the the support of U.S. politicians for Israel is all about the Benjamins, um, and that she apologized, and she's never been anti-Semitic again, which, of course, is a big fat lie, because since then, she has compared the quote, unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban. That's what she wrote, referring to the U.S. US withdrawal from Afghanistan and then the Taliban takeover. So she put Israel, Afghanistan, the Taliban, Hamas, and the U.S., her own country, into the same package because Elon Omar is an anti-Semite who hates America. Now, this is the clip from The View. And this is how Whoopi Goldberg responded. Well, one thing that Representative Ilan Omar said that did bother me in 2021 was she tweeted something comparing the U.S., Israel, Hamas, and the Taliban as all terrorist organizations. And she has maybe way more knowledge and experience in the very complicated Middle Eastern relations. But I did find that being on a foreign committee and comparing the country to a terrorist, a known terror, those are organized terrorist communities that, not Israel, but Hamas and the Taliban. That it depends on who you talk to. Right. Well, I mean, those are, that's how they're recognized as, as, as terrorist and organizations. But it does depend on, it, it, on who you yeah, talk to. Well, really it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> it depends on who you talk to, whether Hamas, the terror group that has been responsible for more terrorism on Israeli civilians than any other terrorist group in the last 70 years, including the Spiral restaurant that killed 15 people and seven children, the Dolphinarian disco bombing, which killed 21 people, the 2002 suicide bombing of the Pesach, at the Pesach Seder in Netanya, which killed 30 people and injured 140, and the bombing at the Hebrew University, which killed nine people, including four American citizens. They are a terror group that controls the Gaza Strip. They have indiscriminately fired thousands of rockets at Israeli civilian centers. They had... They engaged in four wars with Israel, 2008, 2012, 2014, 2021. They also held Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit hostage for five years and only released him in exchange for thousands of Palestinian terrorists who had been in prison in Israel. They also have currently two Israeli civilians that are still being held hostage and the bodies of two Israeli soldiers that they're holding on to in the hopes that Israel will release more terrorists, okay? So here we have a group that is responsible for suicide bombings, rocket attacks, hostage-taking. They are literally the most terrorist, terroristic, terrorizing terror group. And Whoopi Goldberg is questioning, well, it depends who you ask. Well, who should we ask? Whoopi, not Goldberg? Whoopi Cushion Goldberg? She also has tweeted against Israel, by the way, pro-Palestinian tweets about the men, women, and children in Gaza getting massacred and that she's not going to stop having an opinion because someone somewhere is not going to like it. Well, I don't like it. And now you don't like it. And now I think Whoopi Goldberg should be fired from The View, finally, for Jewish appropriation, for whitewashing the Holocaust, for suggesting that Hamas is not a terror group, and for having the worst hair and makeup on television. That's right. This week's episode of The Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Mayor Panim, a terrific and important charity organization here in the land of Israel. They need your help to fight poverty in Israel. They have an incredible, dedicated team here feeding, caring for, and insisting needy people all over Israel. And they can't do it without your small donation, whether it's $10, $18. That's all it takes to help support the people who are on the ground making sure that immigrants, Holocaust survivors, and troubled teens get the help that they need. 
You know that over 20% of Israel's senior citizens live alone? Mayor Panim is there to make sure that every Holocaust survivor has a community and activities that will keep them engaged and happy for the last years of their lives. Mayor Panim is really doing great things, and they've been endorsed by some pretty fabulous people, including Jamie Geller, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Lau, and Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. All of these terrific individuals encourage Jews around the world to support Mayor Panim. It really is an organization that is here on the ground making a difference, trying to change the shocking statistics that are poverty in Israel. However you want to help, Mayor Panim can make that possible for you. You can leave Mayor Panim money in your will. So head over to my show note links and be part of the solution today. Mayor Panim, the link is in my show notes. All right, let's talk about something joyful and light and happy before we get on to the conversation with our two next guests, which were, by the way, joyful and light and happy, but, you know, just different. Um, when I was a kid, we had something in our school called a walkathon, which I absolutely hated. You had to raise money and then walk. So I didn't like the raising money part, and I certainly didn't like the walking part. So basically, you had to gather donations by getting people to pledge a certain amount for each unit or distance that you would walk. And there was this giant track across the street from our school, and every time you walked around the track, you would increase the amount of donations that you would get. And there were water bottles, and there were T-shirts, and the parents were there, and everybody was cheering on the kids, and they were walking, and I was not happy. I walked three times, and then I told my father I need $10 (laughs) to pay for my pledges, and that was it. Now, don't get me wrong. I do like taking walks now as a grown-up, especially about 4.30 p.m. shortly after my kids come home from school. I suddenly have a tremendous urge to go outdoors <laughs> and take a swift walk and enjoy the sun setting and the quiet. And then I come home, and it's already dark. This is obviously in the winter here in Israel, and I tell my kids that it's bedtime. But my mother is a runner, and that means that marathons have become part of our lives. When my sister got married last year— We flew in for the wedding, and then we were sure to get up the morning after the wedding, bright and early, to be at the Friendship Circle Marathon where my mother was running. Was she running for the Friendship Circle? No. She doesn't run for a cause. Well, she does run for a cause. Her cause is the fakey fella cause. (laughs) Her mental health and her emotional well-being, that is the cause, and we are all for it. We are all standing there supporting her with posters, go mom, go. And we, we try to be supportive, as supportive as possible. And my mother actually came here to Israel a few months ago in the winter, and she was going to run the Jerusalem Marathon, but then it was freezing and pouring, and after four days of eating Israeli breakfasts at the Waldorf, it was not hard to convince her just to skip it. <laughs> I think she was upset with me later, but, you know, she's running again. Not for president, although considering Kanye West is now running with Donald Trump, you know, she could probably win. So, yeah. But anyway, back to the whole marathon thing. I have been to a number myself. I tried to run the Jerusalem Marathon or to train for it. And then two weeks before, I kid you not, I broke my toe. I did. I stubbed my toe on our dining room table chairs, which weigh 400 pounds, and I stubbed my toe. And that was the end of walking as an extracurricular activity for me. But why am I talking about this? Because I saw something so joyful on COL Out in California on a sunny day in Los Angeles, 700 people joined together to celebrate children and young adults with disabilities by walking part of the Friendship Circle's Walk for Friendship uh, Street Festival. So there were hundreds of Jews walking in their bright blue T-shirts, cheering each other on. Yossi Ruddle was there singing his famous song, Proud Jew. There were festivities on the street. It was full of amazing attractions. It was joyful. It was positive. And as Miriam Ravnoy, the shlucha to FCLA, the Friendship Circle of Los Angeles said, for every single neshama to be included in this Jewish community, it's just an absolutely beautiful thing to see. They raised 26, I'm sorry, 267 thousand dollars okay close to 75 percent of their goal and that is just phenomenal so call a vote to the friendship circle of los angeles keepwalking.com that's not actually their website that's just what i say to my kids when they're complaining just keepwalking.com we live in israel now you're either going to be walking uphill or downhill or a combination of both but this is what it is all right next subject uh i don't know if you guys noticed but there have been an increasing amount of black people who either want to be Jewish, think they're Jewish, 
and now are marching in the streets of New York claiming that they are the real Jews. Now, what is going on? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know why people are confused whether they hate the Jews or actually want to be the Jews. I'm just a freckle-faced Ashkenazi girl asking the world not to hate me. So I reached out to that Semite on Instagram, a terrific guy, an activist, a proud Jew, a proud Israeli, originally from, well, you know what? Let me let him tell his story. Here we go. Yermio Eliyahu, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Well, thank you for having me. Is there a shorter version of your name? <laughs> a shorter version of my name? I say there's a couple, right? It depends on the context. But uh, people who can have trouble saying Yermiao usually call me Yermi. All right. And on Instagram, you're That Semite. I'm That Semite. That's right. And, and That Semite was not happy with Candace Owens today. No, not. Uh, I would say that that's a, an understatement. <laughs> not any day? <laughs> well, look, I mean... It, Let's just say, like, I try to stay out of the the weeds of American politics. And, you know, Candace Owens is definitely not uh, a figure that uh, shies away from controversy. Uh, but the second she starts talking about Jewish people, Jewish identity, Semitic identity, right, that's that's my wheelhouse, you know. And if she says something which is dangerous for us, you know, I'm not going to be quiet. I was actually really annoyed with her today because... She's been railing against Kim Kardashian for the last 24 hours, calling her out on social media for not condemning the Palenciaga uh, deal she has. And I was just like, wow, now I understand why people were so annoyed with her, because when she wants to make something clear, she can find the words. And, you know, she did not find the words when she needed to defend the Jewish people. She just somehow, you know, she came in short. So I actually posted on Instagram um, in response to her, because she wrote, me waiting for Kim Kardashian to condemn Balenciaga with the same speed that she publicly condemned her own husband for his anti-Semitism. And I was like, me waiting for Candace Owens to condemn Kanye with the same speed that she publicly condemned Kim Kardashian for not condemning Balenciaga. Like, she, you know what I mean? Explain to me what triggered you today and what was uh, the real about. Well, look, the fact that somebody whenever somebody says to me in, that um, Jews aren't only Semites and I can't be uh, anti-Semitic because I'm Semitic in any context I'm like okay like you really either you genuinely have no idea what you're talking about um, or you're just trying to obfuscate and you're trying to distract from the very real hatred and tropes that we all know anti-Semitism describes um, and this was like one of the worst examples I've ever seen of it like she took the word Semitic not anti-Semitic and started describing, oh, Semitic could be so many different people, anybody that speaks a Semitic language. It's like, okay, that's fine. But that has nothing to do with the term anti-Semitic, right? And, and the reality is, is that she knows that, right? She knows that what Kanye said was horribly bigoted. She knows that the, the documentary that Kyrie Irving shared is terribly anti-Semitic. I mean, it includes Holocaust denial and the worst type of tropes about a Jewish cabal and conspiracy to control. Did you see the footage in New York where they're marching saying that they're the real Jews? I, I mean, did, if yeah. that's not a visceral example of how words trans translate into action, I mean, that was just bone chilling. Yeah, I think a lot of people are either in denial about how real this is um, or they're happy to see it. And like, I'm not going to make the judgment call right now who Candace Owens is on this specific issue, but I think that you know, for a lot of people, it's one of those two things or, or a combination of the two, because if we don't wake up to this and deal with this in a responsible manner, not just, you know, to have Twitter wars or, you know, and, and create more content, but to actually have conversations about what this type of hatred is and how it manifests and who it targets, then we're, we're, we're heading towards a terrible uh, crash collision, in my opinion. Right. Well, let's back up for a second. You are a Jew as much as I am a Jew, but I am a Eastern European Jew and you are, is it Caribbean or Caribbean? Can we settle this once and for all? Caribbean, Caribbean. Yeah. Caribbean. I always said it was Caribbean, but there are people like Pirates of the Caribbean, whatever. Well, if so you're getting from a movie like Pirates of the Caribbean, I think it's, uh, it's fair to second guess it. Okay. So where did you grow up? So actually like my mother's family is Caribbean and my father's family is from Israel. My father was born in Israel. My mother was born in Guyana. Um, and they met in a place where basically is the only place where a Caribbean Jew and an Israeli Jew can meet, and that's New York City. Um, so you mentioned Crown Heights. You know, my my parents actually met and were married right in the wake of the Crown Heights riots, 
where a Guyanese boy was struck and killed by the Lubavitcher Rebbe's motorcade. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's like the beginning of my life was like the kind of conflict between uh, these two communities. Um, but I grew up with a very strong Jewish identity, very proud of my Caribbean heritage as well, um, and a very proud Israeli, uh, which led me to come back to Israel eventually. Uh, but that's kind of me in a nutshell, just in terms of background. Well, do you feel like a minority in a minority? Because that's really your angle. I see your activism and it's very specific. You are speaking up for Jews of color, not specifically African or black Jews, but Jews who are darker than I am. My husband's a Sephardic Jew as well. And I could tell you that I often find it surprising to hear that there is some sort of still stigma attached with being a dark Jew or a Middle Eastern Jew or an African Jew or Ethiopian Jew. Um, maybe I have white privilege, <laughs> but at the same time, we're both Jews in the eyes of anti-Semites. So we are fighting the same, the same war, but t tell, tell me a little bit more about what inspires you or motivates you or makes you so passionate about this specific niche in your activism. So really it was something that was thrust upon me from a very young age. You know, I definitely identify with the description of being a minority within minority because one of my earliest memories was going to Jewish kindergarten and coming home and saying, Ma, uh, the kids at, at school were telling me that I'm an N-word. What is that? And For I remember real? watching my mom cry and like have to deal with that. And so, and ironically was like, I was getting it a lot from Jews that moved to the United States from Mexico. And so it was like, the whole thing was very confusing to me from a young age, but I realized that I was perceived differently, that I was perceived as some type of anomaly, a stranger, not really welcome in this kind of broaderly understood white passing, white presenting or white Jewish community in America. Um, and so that was one aspect. Like I felt like I was constantly representing myself and other Jews of color. The fact that, hey, we're exists, we're reality. You know, the, the American Jewish history isn't all of Jewish history. And there's a broad uh, Jewish diaspora with a wealth of Jewish experiences. And really, we're not a minority within a minority. We're just we're equal parts of the families. We're the other side of the family that you may not know. Totally. Um, so I'm married. Yeah. I'm married to a Sephardi Jew. And let me tell you. He was an anomaly <laughs> when I brought him home, <laughs> to say the least. So, yeah, yeah, true story. Yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely familiar with that within my own family as well, right? And that's one of the things that's so beautiful, I think, about Israel is that we have this kibbutz galayot, this in gathering of the exile, totally. which allows for us to get to know each other once again after 2,000, 2,700 years in some cases. But so that was one aspect of the of the kind of experience in America. The other aspect was, I remember, around, I think I was probably around 14 years old, walking around Queens, Jamaica, Queens, New York, which is this Caribbean hub where a lot of my family lives. Um, and I had my Megan David on very proudly. And some uh, African-American brother, probably Caribbean brother, was standing on the street and he just saw me walking by. He's like, oh, hey, brother, come over here. Uh, you look like you know who you are. And I'm like, I'm like, I definitely know who I am. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, what tribe do you belong to? And I'm like, tribe i'm like i'm a jew so tribe. i just said judah i'm from the tribe of judah he's like oh okay he's like you look caribbean though like you're not caribbean I'm like oh, I'm, I'm guyanese and he's like oh you're from the tribe of benjamin and i'm like okay something's going on here and i don't know what this is but, this was the first yeah. you heard of the 12 tribes this is the first i heard about an identity like he was connecting the fact that i was caribbean from a specific country within the caribbean to a tribal Israelite identity. And so I, at first I thought I was just talking to another Caribbean Jew, but then I realized that there was another ideology here. And immediately I jumped in the deep end of what I understood was this Hebrew Israelite identity, um, nation of Islam identity, and basically how it was presented as being at odds with Judaism, at odds with Jewishness, and certainly at odds with Jews of color in a way, right? Because there's, there's an interesting overlap as well. So do you understand what they're talking about when they say that the Africans are the original Jews? Because to me, it's like, what, what, say what, where is this coming from? I am so confused. I thought I, I, my grandma was a Holocaust survivor. I win the most Jewish Jew. <laughs> like, what, what is this conversation? Can you, can you explain a little bit where this is coming from and what it means? So there's a, it's a, first of all, it's a very complex topic and it's a very complex history, but the beginnings of what would become to be described in time as the Hebrew Israelite movement is really comes back to during slavery, enslavement in the Caribbean and in the United States. 
um, and really took off in the emancipation period. But basically, we can already see that during the period of enslavement in the United States, that we have communities like Israel Hill popping up, basically communities that were describing themselves as Jews or as Israelites. Um, the problem was is that the United States back then was a racial apartheid, like literally. It separated people based mm-hmm. on race. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, Jews that were in the Americas that were white presenting, white passing, and were able to integrate themselves into whiteness invariably, um, they were able to navigate that racial caste system, this racial right, segregation. They slipped under the radar. <laughs> exactly. And so other Jews, Jews of color that were there from the beginning in all over the world and also in the Americas, weren't able to, right? And so what we have is in that period it, during slavery and certainly in the post-emancipation uh, period, certain Jews were able to integrate themselves into mainstream Jewish communities and certain groups weren't. And in terms of the origin of that identity, right, that's like a whole subject in itself. Does it come from Africa? Does it come from identification during slavery? We can get into that. But the point is, is that there's people identifying as Jews and as Israelites. Now, the response to that from the white American establishment, from the Jewish community, depended on where you were. And as a result of that, this movement, like I said, back then it wasn't called Hebrew Israel. I do, they didn't really know what to call it yet. Created different ideologies and theologies based on their experiences. So we have immediately uh, groups in the South, which basically looked like churches. The, the movement looked very much like Christianity. But also we have in the North communities that look basically exactly like rabbinic standard mainstream Judaism. We would know, and a lot of those are Caribbean Jews coming out of the islands, coming into New York, going to Boston, going to Detroit, going to Chicago and creating communities where they could feel at home. But um, how do we identify who's who in the zoo? I mean, at the end of the day, we have a very clear system on how we decide if somebody is a legitimate Jew and if somebody, maybe there was intermarriage, maybe there was just influence that came from the Jewish community that seeped into their traditions. Like, this is this is tricky stuff, and you don't want to offend anyone, and you don't want to lose any Jews who might be clinging on saying, Hey, I'm part of, I'm part of your clan. But at the same time, like it's, it's a real struggle to figure out with each case, with each particular case, is there a legitimate claim to Judaism in this person's history, in this person's family, in this person's blood? Yeah. I I think first of all, I always emphasize the fact that communities, whether we were in Yemen or in India or in Ethiopia or Germany or Russia, where we have uh, continuous Israelite, continuous Jewish communities from the first and second temple periods, right? And nobody can cast a doubt on that, right? Anybody who's engaged in that type of talk is engaging in a form of erasure, and erasure in the Jewish context is anti-Semitism, period. Now, totally. My back, husband always says that, you know, Avram Avina was darker than he is, so. But for sure, right? But and that's connected to how, why that, that ideology developed into like a really key point in Hebrew Islam movement in America, but I, maybe we'll get back to that. But to answer the question about how do you know about like this system and how do you apply it to people who went through slavery, who came to the Americas, who came to the Caribbean, right? The issue is, is that we often think about Judaism in one context, and that's this continuous community. But we also have a reality that we call in halakha, right? And this idea of people that were forcibly detached from the collective and in mm-hmm. various ways maintained or didn't maintain that identification and practice of Judaism. And our sources aren't silent on this issue. This isn't like we have to guess, okay, now what do we do now? The problem is just for the past 2000 years, we haven't had to really deal with it outside of very specific, small, local communal contexts. And all of a sudden in the state of Israel, in the Jewish world right now, not just this community, but a lot of other communities are wanting to have that kind of conversation because once again, people are, are like for the first time in 2000 years, people actually have the freedom to be able to have these conversations, right? And so what we have here is a very bad example. It's not a conversation. It's like, it's a it's a fight. You know, we're really slugging it out because we're speaking different languages. The, the experiences have gotten so estranged from each other and some very strong racist and anti-Semitic overtones are really dominating everything that's happening in this context. So just to be clear, there's two separate situations unfolding. We have the Jews that have been historically black or dark-skinned or Semites, and then we have the African-Americans that are claiming some sort of connection to Judaism, and then it gets a little bit murky. Well, not a little bit murky, very murky. And I would imagine that's a conflict in the Sephardic community 
as well because it kind of messes up their their the narrative when you have other black people who are clearly not Jewish railing on, on the sides that you know we're the original Hebrews. It's like what what where did you guys come from? Like what what are you doing here? Well, I guess the first thing is boundaries, right? When people are coming and saying like, hey. Uh, I'm part of your family. The first thing is like, okay, you know, first thing, who are you? Where you where you come from? You're part of my family. Like, I want to know. Not because like I'm against you. I, I dislike you. I'm trying to get you out of here. No, it's because you're a family member, a lot, maybe a lost family member. I want to get to know you. How have you been for the past two thousand, three thousand years? And through where that, have you been? <laughs> we, exactly. Where have you been? But in the reality is that, in, in let's say for example, like I'm a Caribbean Jew. If there's other people who are in these Hebrew Israelite camps and movements who are also Caribbean, right? So some of us actually have really close ties. Like I said, it was like, just imagine the context of like, we moved from Jamaica or Barbados and many of us had Sephardic Jewish grandparents, right? That's also a big part of this, right? Because again, it's not like these communities were completely separated in the Caribbean. Uh, we come to the, to the US, we want to do Jewish just like we were doing Jewish before. Um, and some people were accepted into the synagogue, maybe not as full members because of the way we look. And some people came to the synagogue and they said, you know what, we already got enough colored folks here. You're out. What does that person do? In the case of people like the commandment keepers community in Harlem, they just created their own community. Now that community did Judaism the same way as other Jews were doing it in Harlem. Right. And like basically, you know, ways that were very, what we would say, looking back today, Ashkenormative. Sephardic normative, depending on how you looked at it. Now, one of the members of that community, his name was Abba Bivens. He was the one that founded a group within the Hebrew Islam movement called One West. And that group became super Christian, super racist, and super anti-Semitic. And so wow. a lot of the people you see on the street corners, those are people who are literal ideological and theological descendants of that one individual. Now, that adds a whole different element to this thing, right? And then a lot of us don't know about that. But I think that that is the conversation that we need to be having. It doesn't demand us to do a specific thing in terms of like halakha or policy, but it does give a more of a context to what we're dealing with here right now, because now it just looks like everybody's saying, you're a usurper, you're a usurper. And I don't think that that's going to get us anywhere positive. Is this something that the Ashkenazi community needs to be involved in? Or this is not, it's not their fight, it's not their battle, it's not their cause? Like at the end of the day, we're all, we're one family, right? And I don't I don't believe in having that we should be having conversations that exclude any members of the tribe or tribes, I should say. But I do think specifically in this context, that Jews of color should be leading the conversations just because we have the experience to be able to deal with it. You know, because often this conversation will quickly derail into experiences of racism within the Jewish community. And this is a real, this is a real issue, right? I just gave you a couple of anecdotes for myself. I could, unfortunately, I could give you a lot more. Um, and, you know, they can't tell me that, right? They can't tell me about racism in the Jewish community. I know, but that doesn't deny the Jewishness of the entire community. It doesn't erase the Jewishness, the Israelite identity, the culture, the, the essence of who we are, right? That doesn't, one thing doesn't justify the other. And the, because that people within some of these radical groups are used to only seeing one face to Jewish, it becomes easy to use those tropes to buy into these ideas, these anti-Semitic ideas, and to really sell them on and basically get a mass appeal to the point that we have some of the most prominent voices within pop culture parroting these ideas and not really fearing uh, the consequences. It's really fascinating to me because this was not a conversation when I was growing up. I'm not sure it's, if it's because of social media. I'm not sure if it's just, you know, every couple decades, something new surfaces. When the Ethiopians came to, to Israel, and that was a whole new phenomena for the Ashkenazic Holocaust survivors that were here because they had never seen a black person in their life. And suddenly they were neighbors, you know. So their traditions were different. Their language was different. Their accent was different. I remember reading in Golda Meir's book how she describes the housing facilities they built for the Ethiopian families, and they regretted making kitchens because the Ethiopian women had never cooked in a kitchen, and they were not using their kitchens. They were using it for storage and then cooking outside in the backyard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but she's like, but it's Israel. It's a modern country. We have to build homes with, with uh, ovens. But let's go back to this, or just to wrap it up, let's just go back to this whole Candace Kanye thing for a second. The reason that this conversation is back in the light, in the limelight, um, has so much to do with the tension between the African-American community and the Jewish people. And this, unfortunately, leaves 
the dark-skinned Jews or the Sephardic Jews or the Ethiopian Jews or the black Jews literally caught in the middle because on the one hand, it's very hard not to stand up for the Jewish people. On the other hand, there is some sort of brotherhood or connection. You could describe it better than I can, but there is some sort of feeling of being caught in the middle. And I'm definitely feeling that from some of my black female friends or influencers. And, and they are having trouble finding their voices in the midst of all this. So what do you have to say to people who are struggling between the two aspects of themselves, the Jew in them and the black in them. Well, let me just start by saying that the past month has been emotionally exhausting for me and for a lot of my colleagues in this space, because it really does feel like we're being pulled at from all sides, (laughs) not just both sides, Um, because it's like it's family, right? It really is family. It's cousins, it's uncles, it's, you know, it's aunts, it's neighbors, it's all of that, right? And my advice to anybody caught in this position is just be your authentic selves, right? We've been doing, we didn't start doing this yesterday. We didn't definitely didn't start doing this today. We've been doing this for centuries and we've been doing this for millennia, right? The fact that we exist in our Jewish selves, in our melanated selves, this isn't new. We've been here for, since the beginning. And we can say that unapologetically, Uh, and proud in a way that embraces the full complexity of what it means to be a Jew in this world and certainly what it means to be a Jew in America. Well, I think ultimately, if we come at people with love and respect and conversation, no matter what the issue at hand is, we can make progress and create connections. Ultimately, we want to be at peace with all our brothers and sisters, whether we're in the Jewish community, whether to our American brothers and sisters. And I've discovered that the aggressive tactics I've seen used on social media are kind of backfiring in many ways. So I appreciate the fact that you get on. You're very clear about what your message is. You're not looking to attack people. You are looking to bring people closer together. And I think that anyone who is more curious about this particular subject should definitely follow your socials. You're that semi, right? On Instagram. Great content. And you're and you write. I saw some of your work in Times of Israel. You're a great writer, and um, I appreciate having an ally like you, my Jewish brother, fighting the good fight out for the dark-skinned people. That's right. I, on the other hand, well, I'm just going to keep wearing sunscreen and fending for myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I empathize. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. As you all know, I'm a proud advocate for Aliyah. I. I get involved with Nefesh Benefesh as much as possible. I was part of a beautiful breakfast they had a couple months ago where they invited all kinds of activists and pro-Israel characters to, you know, communicate and connect and to continue feeling proud as Olim to spread the good word about making Aliyah here to the land of Israel. So it was without a hesitation that I reached out yesterday to Uri Pilichowski. He is a Jerusalem Post columnist, a well-known Israeli American educator. He works at Nefesh Benefesh. He moved to Israel eight years ago. I'm just going to share first a Facebook post that he wrote when his daughter graduated high school um, about five months ago. He wrote, living the dream, day 2883. What a night, a once in a lifetime evening for our daughter, Naomi. We are so proud of Naomi for graduating from high school tonight. High school are some of the most challenging days for a young woman's life. Naomi Shlomit is named after the verse... The Torah's ways are pleasant and all of its paths are peaceful. And she has lived up to her name throughout high school, bringing pleasantness and peace to every situation in high school. Naomi was also elected rabbinit of her class, which is something like a combination of student council president, valedictorian, and prom queen. Wow. And then he goes on to say that they're really proud of her. She's going to be working at kids um, with who are at risk for her year of national service. And just a beautiful post. So you can only imagine what happened yesterday when Uri Pilichowski sent his daughter off to school and then realized that there was a bombing at the bus stop where she would be, where she generally was. And he tweeted out that his daughter was in the terrorist attack. And thank God she's fine, just a small cut. And he thanked people for their many prayers, messages, and well-being. Today he wrote an entire essay that I'm not going to get into the second. Um, But ultimately, he made it very clear that this terrorist attack has nothing to do with occupation um, or two states or apartheid. Terrorist attacks have been happening before 1948, before 1967. This is just the way 
of the Palestinian people. And he wants to make it very clear that Israel is a safe country. And yes, the headlines are scary. And a, and a young child was killed yesterday. A 15-year-old baby-faced immigrant was murdered yesterday at the bus on his way to school. But still, every single day, there are 9 million Israelis who are perfectly safe. And they were safe yesterday, and they are safe today, and they will be safe tomorrow. And I thought that was a very important message to share. So I got him on a call. I'm going to share that with you. But first, let me just warn you that I might have offended him by assuming his politics. I assumed that he is politically one way or the other because he lives in Mitzbeh Yericho, which is officially a settlement, and he was not pleased with me. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> we had a reasonably meaningful conversation. He has some great books to recommend, so jot those down. So that said, here we go. Educator, columnist, political commentator, and author. He tweets about Torah, Israel, Zionism, Rabbi Uri Pilichowski. Uri Pilichowski, did I pronounce it correctly? Perfect. Welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Today was a very strange day for me. I got up this morning and I was like, I want to go to Yerushalayim. Like, I'm in the mood, you know? And I got ready to go. And before I walked out the door, I looked down at my phone and I saw that there were two explosions in Yerushalayim. And my heart dropped. And my kishka started turning. And lo and behold, it's another day of mourning here in the land of Israel. So can you please tell me what this day was like for you, first as a father and then as an Israeli? So my you know, my daughter was in the attack and uh, they started off... I have another daughter that flew to America this morning, so dropping her off very, very early in the morning in Yerushalayim and then getting to my office abnormally early. Um, and then having my another one of my daughters write that there was just a bus bombing and, uh, you know, but at a bus stop and she was there, um, but she's fine. And uh, assuming that she was mistaken because it's been like 20 years since we've had a bus bombing here, you know, or any bombing for that matter. It's, mm -hmm. We've had car rammings, we've had stabbings, we've had shootings. But the days of the late 1990s and, uh, and early 2000s of, of the, uh, you know, the second intifada and the bus bombing. So that really, that hasn't happened in a long time. Yeah, so, that, that in itself was a, a tragic uh, realization for Israelis this morning. Like, we're doing this right. again. We're back there. Right. It's so traumatizing. Exactly. Right. So I assume my daughter was mistaken. I assume that something, that, you know, she wasn't injured. So I assume that, you know, she had seen something that that wasn't, you know, wasn't really what, you know, what was there. Um, uh, but then turns out, obviously she was right. And then she wrote that, uh, that she has a little cut, but she's really okay. And then she said that, um, they're taking her to the, to the hops, the hospital in an ambulance. So that's when we said, okay, we've got to get to her. Um, so I was already in Yerushalayim. My wife was home. Uh, so we both left, uh, but I got there obviously before her and went to the hospital and saw her and then start the whole process of doctors and interviews and police and Shabak and everything else until you get out of there. Well, is this your your closest call with terrorism as a, I mean, clearly you're an American and you're living here in Israel. Just so I tell my audience, you live in... I live in Mitzvah, Yericho, and Yehuda Vashemron, in Judea and Samaria. The world calls the West Bank. Yes, yeah, so you live in Judea and Samaria, Mitzvah, Yericho, where you would assume there might be more terrorism than in Yerushalayim, especially as of lately. So as an American Israeli, what was running through your mind today? And I know that you're very political. I know you write your opinions on Twitter. You say loud and proud. I'm a settler, which in Israel is not a bad word. And here you are, and your child is extremely close to something very scary that took another child away from their family today. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of children that are you know, that are also injured, that uh, a lot more, a lot of, you know, there, was, there were kids, the whole hallway that we were in was full of uh, of young people that were that were injured, it was you know it wasn't a uh, uh, you know we weren't the only ones in the emergency room, and we were in the hospital where they sent the light victims. You know, Shari Tzedek had uh, had the heavy victims, and we weren't sent there. We were sent to Adasa and Karim. So, uh, but you know, as somebody listening to the show, one of the misnomers or mistakes that people have, I should say, is that uh, that there's more violence here and there's more. But the you know, big terror attacks, everybody remembers, the big terror attacks always happen in in the big cities because that's where the people are. Uh, so he, where we live is is relatively safe. Um, it's you know when you send your children off to the big city, that's where you have to worry. Um, so that's uh, yeah, so it's a concern. But I have I have two other children that go to school in Yerushalayim, and I, yeah, they asked if they should go on the buses this morning after the attack, and they both go to school in Ramot. So the answer is always yes. Yeah, the answer is always right, yes. So we said them, but then there was another bombing in Ramot. Yeah, so it's uh, it was a little tough. 
so uh, this is, again, on the backs of a, a massive political red wave, like they call it in America. But officially, we have politicians in power, or will have shortly, that are much more aggressive when it comes to dealing with terrorism and the tactics they use with the Palestinian people, what's acceptable, what's not, what they're willing to give in to, and what they're not. So you voted, I'm assuming, I'm just going to throw it out there, for merits. Um, I went to Colo Merits. I learned in a call called Merits with the with one of the Roche calls. But you didn't vote for Yalir Lapid. <laughs> you didn't so, vote for uh, Lapid. I, I don't discuss. I, 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 you know, I, as much as I, I write a lot, uh, I, I write about Zionism. I don't discuss my politics um, with you anybody, in, even my wife. You live in Mitzvah Yericho. We know your politics. I, I, so you don't. So don't, please don't assume that. Um, not you know, not everybody that lives in Yudav Shomron is monolithic. Votes go all over. It's the votes in our town, the yeah, majority went one way, but uh, there were votes all over the place. And thank God, uh, you know, that's uh, please don't assume anybody's politics. But yeah, that's definitely not mine. But as an Israeli, can I ask you what your opinion was or what your opinion is about our safety, the situation with the Palestinians in general? I, I say, look, I, I live in a I live in a town with a zero percent crime rate, zero percent crime rate. That's that's unheard of in the world. Zero percent crime rate in anywhere else in the world. You don't hear that. I know we have no crime where I live. Um, you know, so, yes, we have people that don't like us 100 percent. But we have, you know, people look at a day like today and say, oh, it's unsafe. But there were nine over nine million safe Israelis this morning who got to work fine, who went through their lives fine. Um, and they did so yesterday, the day before, and they'll do so tomorrow and the day after that. Uh, we live in a very, very safe place. And just because attacks make the headlines, um, you know, that should not make anybody think that this is uh, this is unsafe. I feel perfectly safe. I feel perfectly confident where I live. Uh, you know, my daughter will be back at, at, you know, at her national service is what she does. She'll be right back at it. This is not nobody's, you know, people have to look at things in proper perspective and not get carried away by the media. I love that. I absolutely love that. And the Lubavitcher used to say, Eretz Yisrael is the safest place. Hashem protects it day and night, never closes his eyes. So that's something that all my listeners abroad that might be concerned today, sure, say a capital of Tehillim. Sure, you have to advocate for Israel. Sure, stand up wherever you are in your communities for the Jewish people. Absolutely. But don't think for one second that Eretz Yisrael is not safe and that the Israeli government and the Israeli police and the Israeli army and the Israeli people are not doing their best to live a safe, beautiful life. I live here five years. I feel very safe here. I let my kids come and go. Even on a day like today, it's okay. We're doing okay. Um, let me ask you something before I let you go. Uh, uh, you're a big reader, from what I understand. I like to read, yeah. Okay. Can you recommend me some great books on Israel? Because I am plowing through whatever I can, and some are more tedious than others. I'm actually in the middle of listening to Bibi's my story. I'm trudging through it. I don't know if it's the narrator. I don't know if it's the narrator. It's very interesting, but it's slow. So what would you recommend for people listening? Uh, What's a great book on Israel? So, okay. So, so there's two, you have to split Israel books into two. There's uh there's books about the current situation, right? Which is, you know, BB's uh, a book, BB, my story is, is very good on the current situation. Um, and then there's books on, you know, the overall, um, you know, Zionism and the philosophy of the state of Israel and and what and what we're all about. So uh, so in, in terms of, you know, history, there's a book that very few people have read that I think is amazing um, and it's on Audible. So you can get it there. It's called Reclaiming Israel's History by a friend of mine named David Bragg. Um, so that was that I thought was an incredible book. There's another book I think is amazing, but if it's long. I mean, it is like we're talking about close to 800 pages and it's like uh, and it's not Star Wars. <laughs> right. And, and it only goes to 1981. The author died in like the early 80s. But he was uh, his name was Connor. His name was Connor Cruz O'Brien. And he was the Irish diplomat at the United Nations who sat between Israel and Iran in the what? General Assembly. And he and wrote a book. It's, it's alphabetical. So, right, so right. Israel, so, Ireland, he, Iran. Right. So he was. He would look about left and right, and he would realize that the two people on the sides and weren't talking, but they had so much in common. So he went to. He, he started examining their stories and their narratives, and wrote the most amazing book on on Israel. Another one for this for the current situation, um, a book that will really get you thinking. Catch Forty Seven by Mika Goodman. 
I'm um, writing so it down like I'm writing it down like I'm not recording my show. <laughs> like right, writing I can it on also a piece just of paper. send you the list. Um, I <laughs> well, for people listening, about. well, for people listening as well. Right. Okay, um, I'm going to let you go, but just share with with everybody listening how they should move to Israel and what they can do as Jews abroad to help us fight the good fight. Look, if if uh, moving to into Israel is something that you're able to do. So this is home. You know, uh, I did a ra- I did an interview. I don't know if it was radio or TV this morning. I can't remember um, of Israeli radio. And the, uh, the the person interviewing me said, you know, I, I hear an accent. And I have the strongest accent in the world. You don't so. say. <laughs> right. Yeah. So she said, I hear an accent. Did you move to Israel? So I said, you know, I moved from from America. So she said, uh, she said, well, how do you feel about the move today? You know, so I said, I feel perfectly safe because this is home. And the reason I, I came here is because I came home, and you're always safest at home, um, no matter what. So, uh, you know, and it's, this, it's the same answer I gave. I moved in 2014 in, in the middle of Operation Cast Lead. We landed with rockets falling and had to sprint out of the airport. And uh, we didn't have one of those big ceremonies. We had to, uh, we had to run out. And, uh, and the same thing, I got the same question then, and that's where I had the answer from. You know, you always want to go home. Home is always safe, even though it's under rocket fire. So... If you can come home, this is, look, this is the way that the future of the Jewish people are going to be. Um, this is it, you know, and so if you go, and if you can't, and now's not the time, so it's good to make plans, but also to uh, to advocate for Israel from where you are. Every single person living in America has a member of Congress that works for them. Every two years, they're, they're up for re-election, which is your ability to hire or fire them. And they are responsible to you. And today, where elections come down to a couple of thousand votes, your vote actually means something, and they know that. So if you make an appointment with your member of Congress's office and say, hey, I want just want to put you on your radar that the U.S.-Israel relationship is incredibly important to me, so then that's a way you can advocate for Israel. That's the most effective. Nobody gives uh, as much as the United States of America gives to Israel. You know, we're talking over $4 billion a year. So you're, so saying, that's, not, so that, you're saying not to vote for Elon Omar. I'm not saying. <laughs> <so laughs> Elon Omar has, by the way, her, her district is half Jewish, so... Um, yeah, you know, but that's, but I'm saying that those are, those are the people that, you know, and if you're in Elon Omar's district and you're listening to this, so then make appointments and say, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like you to change your, you know, your perspective on things. This is, this, I'm your constituent and this is the way I see things. Uh, people don't realize how I've been on the phone with members of Congress the whole day, um, you know, with ambassadors and, and so you, they don't realize your influence you have just by explaining how you feel. You don't need to know stats. You don't need to be an expert. You just need to say, this is important to me. That's very, that's, that does it. Well, I share how I feel, and it's usually angry, (laughs) but overall happy to live here in Israel. It just gets really annoying sometimes. Like, give us a break. Leave us alone. Let us live our lives. We're not bothering you. Just stop it. Like, knock it off already, right? Well, I I mean, I don't know what you're referring to, but sure. Everything. (laughs) I'm I'm referring to the guy who drops off the vegetables. Just the whole thing. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's uh, something to work on, I guess. Yeah. 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 yeah, we should only share good news. Uri, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And there you have it, episode 62 of the Weekly Squeeze. Thank you so much for sharing this episode with your friends, for leaving reviews, for dropping links in WhatsApp groups. And head down to my show notes this minute and click on Mayor Panim's link and donate to their amazing cause. I will see you, my dear friends, on Monday.